Let's open our Bibles this evening as we are continuing in our study of John 6, and in particular, questions of salvation and God's sovereignty that are addressed in this chapter. As you can see, we are backing up just a little bit because, and I'm going to move through this portion, this first portion, very quickly. It's a review a little bit, but it's also intimately connected to what we're going to be addressing this evening. And uh, in order for us to get the full context of it, we need to do that. So one of the questions that we had asked in our study is, what verses Words, phrases express the pre permanency of that which is received. And we're talking about the fact of salvation being received, Christ being received into our lives, and again, stressing the permanency of it. We could look at this from the aspect of, uh, is a person who is saved, is that person always going to be saved? Or is it possible that person may be lost at some point in time in the future? Is it possible that a Christian who is genuinely a Christian could commit a sin that would end their salvation? Is it possible that the devil and could deceive a Christian to the point they lose his or her salvation? The list goes on and on and on. Uh, Look at these verses. Just in John 6 alone that stress the permanency of it. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will, and notice the word, never thirst. Never thirst. Our Lord went on to say in the same chapter, all that the Father, will, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So whoever comes to Christ, will he ever cast them out? And the answer to the question is, no. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will certainly not cast that person out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And more verses in the same chapter. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live for how long? Forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus again, I'm going to raise him up on the last day. Why? He has eternal life. He's come to me. He's partaken of me. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Forever. It goes on. Here's some of the additional verses. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him 
will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has what? Eternal life. Not six months of life, not life until he sins, not life until the devil snatches him away, not life until, but he has eternal life. Verse 50, this is the bread which came down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You know, it seems like it's really redundant to stress that so much. But there are a multitude of professing Christians who believe that salvation can be lost. Their belief in the losing of salvation is a belief that is counter to and against the very words of Jesus Christ. It is no small matter. It is no small matter. As a matter of fact, this brings us to our next subject this evening, our next question in this context. What verses in this chapter indicate that the loss of salvation would be an overturning of the absolute sovereign will of God? Are there any verses in this chapter that indicate that? Look down to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in verse 39, Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Notice that phrase, This is the will of him who sent me. What did Christ come to do? He said, I came to do the will of him who sent me. What is the will of him who sent me? This is the will of him who sent me. And then whenever you go down to verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whenever we are talking about the salvation of a person who is genuinely saved, We are talking about the absolute sovereign will of God. That is so important for us to understand. In this context, after communicating a couple of aspects regarding the doctrine of election, and you can see that in your Bibles in verse 37, where Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40 that we just read, explicitly states that eternal salvation is the absolute sovereign will of God. It's the expression of His will whenever a person is saved. I know what happens in the environment within which we live today. And listen to this closely. As Christians we often, almost always, especially today, evaluate the salvation experience in the light of our own experience. Whenever we see someone saved, it is 
normal for us to look at and say, hey, that person has willingly believed in the Lord. Well, behind that is a sovereign will. It's not about their will. It's about the will of God that's taking place there, ultimately. That's one of the things that happens in evangelicalism today, the idea of of salvation. When somebody raises their hand and says, I believe, or they walk forward in a church, they look at that and they think, well, they received Christ. They've become a Christian. It's not that that's not true, but we often start building doctrine around that very experience. Oh, they chose the Lord. Well, why did they believe? They genuine, if they genuinely believed, they believed because God's will is working His plan out in their lives. So important for us to understand that. If at any single point there could be or is a failure in this divine doctrine of salvation, then there is a failure in the entirety of the divine nature. It is so intimately linked to His divine nature, salvation is, that if it at any point fails or comes short, then it's not just that person that is lost, theoretically. It is the entire nature of God that has shown itself to be corrupted. It's that important to make sure we have an understanding, a thorough understanding of the doctrine of salvation. People often don't think about the repercussions of their statements regarding the Christian and how that reverberates up the line, if you will, to the nature of God. I took, and we looked at this slide a couple of weeks ago, and put down a few verses and, um, that you can see here that demonstrate an interrelational, an interrelation and interdependence of the elements of the doctrine of redemption on one another and ultimately on the very nature of God. Take in your Bible and let's look at a few of these. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This one's pretty clear and evident. And we know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You know, it is a very interesting verse because this verse is one of those that you will find in every uh, Christian bookstore in a plaque, on a plaque somewhere. And Christians often always cite it, especially in the midst of trial, and there is nothing wrong with that. That is true. But what they fail to realize that if God is not absolutely sovereign, this verse is of absolutely no value. Notice the text again. We know that God does what? He causes 
It doesn't say God lets things happen, does it? It doesn't say that God is trying to figure things out so they all work together for your good. It says that God causes all things to work together. He causes them all to work together for good. To those who loved Him, who love Him, excuse me, and notice this, and are called according to His purpose. That word called is the effectual call. It's a call that's an element, if you will, of that doctrine of sovereign grace. The effectual call. We could look at verse 29. Notice this. For those whom He foreknew, His foreknowledge of them, His forelove of them, He also predestined. We see them intimately linked together here. And you can move down into verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. You can see that inter, um, interdependence and interrelationship between each one of those. The predestined, the foreknowledge, the called, the justified, the glorified. All of them are connected together, intimately connected, ultimately dependent upon the very nature of God. We can go on. You can see God's justice in verse 30. Romans 8 and verse 30. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He did what? He justified them. He justified them. Now we know also that whenever we're talking about justification, there's another element that comes in there, and that is the element of faith, right? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by what? By faith. We have peace with God. So you can see this interrelationship that exists amongst all of these things. You can see it with regard to God's love down in the same chapter 2, verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If a person gets separated from God, if they are saved and they lose that salvation, what's that tell us about not the person, but about God's love? That His love is not capable of holding a person for eternity because something separated them from it. God's love in that case is just like the love of people, just like the love of man. And God's love clearly in Scripture is superior to man's love. And we could go on. You could see in 1 Peter chapter 1 the interdependence and relationship between hope and the inheritance also in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
the Old Testament prophets spoke of these things. If, if a person loses his or her salvation, if they are separated somehow from God, then the whole salvation is questioned. And if the salvation is questioned, then you have to question what the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Because they wrote of the salvation to come. And they didn't write about a salvation that lasted for six days, six months, six years, or 60 years. We could go on. How about the Spirit of Truth? The Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth is the Holy Spirit who worked in the lives of those prophets to write and who worked in the lives of the apostles to write. They wrote of the eternality of salvation. If it's lost, then the Holy Spirit is wrong. Back to the nature of God again. Let me say it again. If at any single point there could be or there is a failure in this divine doctrine of salvation, then there is a failure in the entirety of the divine nature. The very essence of God would be shown to be defective along with the entirety of the plan of redemption with all the elements of it. This is because all aspects of redemption are intimately interrelated with each other and ultimately hinge on the divine nature of God. The Bible puts it very succinctly in a single phrase. Found in the Old Testament. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, and the last phrase of the verse. Salvation is from who? The Lord, right? It's from the Lord. It's come from His very essence. So important for us to understand and grasp that. Go with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament for a moment. Let's go to the book of Job. This is not in the overhead. Turn to Job 23. Job 23, look at verse 13. But he is unique. Who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decree, decrees are with him. That word unique in our English translations here, it's actually a word in the Old Testament that appears in the Old Testament almost a thousand times. 
It's the word one. One. It can also be translated first. For instance, day one in Genesis 1 is this same word here. The first day. The first day. The one day. With reference to God here, it's not a reference to the divine nature in insofar as the triune God, the Trinity, is concerned. It is a reference to God in the sense of, as this word implies, His uniqueness, His singularity, the fact that there is no one like Him. No one like Him. And as Job is referring to it here, there is no one that can turn him. What he plans, he accomplishes. Job had incredible insight into the very nature of God. And the effect of that nature in humanity. He is unique. No one can turn him. As a matter of fact, let me give you a rather lengthy quote this evening from Barnes' commentary on this particular verse. It is lengthy, but I believe it's, it's, a, it's a pointed and poignant quote that stresses how important this reality of God's uniqueness, and in particular, His sovereignty is. He starts out and he says, but he is one mind. That's another translation of that verse. He is unchangeable. He has formed his plans and no one can divert him from them. Of the truth of this sentiment, there can be no dispute. The only difficulty in the case is to see why Job adverted to it here and how it bears on the train of thought which he was pursuing. The idea seems to be that God was now accomplishing His eternal purposes in respect to Him, that He had formed a plan far back in eternal ages, and that that plan must be executed, that He was a sovereign and that, however mysterious His plans might be, it was vain to contend with them, and that man ought to submit to their execution with patience and resignation. Job expected that God would come forth and vindicate him, but at present all that he could do was to submit. He did not pretend to understand the reason of divine dispensations. He felt that he had no power to resist God. The language is here is that of a man who is perplexed in regard to the divine dealings, but who feels that they are all in accordance with the unchangeable purpose of God. And what his soul desireth, he goes on to say, even that he doth. He does, I love this, what he pleases. None can resist or control him. It is vain, therefore, to contend against him. 
From this passage, we see that the doctrine of divine sovereignty was understood at a very early age of the world and entered undoubtedly into the religion of the patriarchs. It was then seen and felt that God was absolute, that he was not dependent on his creatures, that he acted according to a plan, that he was inflexible in regard to that plan, and that it was in vain to attempt to rescue or, excuse me, attempt to resist its execution. It is, when properly understood, a matter of unspeakable consolation that God has a plan for who could honor a God who had no plan, but who did everything by haphazard. It is a matter of rejoicing that He has one great purpose which extends through all ages, and which embraces all things, for then everything falls into its proper place. Do you understand what he just said there? Whenever you see that it is the plan of God unfolding, and in this particular place, with regard to salvation, it is all falling into place. There is this interrelationship and interdependency of all of these doctrines on one another, and ultimately they all rest on the nature of God. Finishing the quote. And has its appropriate bearing on other events. It is a matter of joy that God does execute all of His purposes. For as they are all good and wise, it is desirable that they should be executed. It would be a calamity if a good plan were not executed. Why then should people complain in the purposes or the decrees of God? End quote. Listen. If you disrupt salvation, if you detract from God's work in the life of a person doctrinally, you're reaching into the very nature of God. It's no small thing. That's why Jesus said, I have come to do my Father's will. It is the will of God that all that He has given me will come to me. And He said, I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus understood that connection of salvation and sovereignty and the essence of God. Look at Psalm 115. Psalm 115, again, with regard to God's sovereignty, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. 
Psalm 135, verse 6 communicates a very similar truth. Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Look at Isaiah with me for a moment. Chapter 14. Isaiah 14, move down in the text to verse 24. This is with regard to a specific plan concerning Assyria. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will be. You notice there God didn't say, I'm sure hoping it turns out the way I planned. Did He say that? No. He said, just like I planned it, so it will be. It will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains, then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched or his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Remember Job's statement, he is unique. Who can turn him? And the answer is no one. We could go on and look at other verses with regard to God's sovereignty and His salvation. But they're all interrelated. His grace, for example, is related to His sovereignty. We talk about being saved by grace. That grace is an extension of His nature, His sovereign nature. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 9. Go there with me. Look at verse 15, Romans 9. And verse 15. Notice God Himself here, and He's citing the Old Testament. But God Himself is joining His grace to His sovereign nature. He says, in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know, that's related to his goodness. You would hate to have someone say that that is a sinner, because then you know that the mercy extended would be corrupted mercy. It would not be a good mercy. So you see, all of this is interrelated. I mean, this, this truth should be such a common truth to all believers. The interrelationship and interdependency upon, of all of these truths with regard to the nature of God. But for some reason or another today, they're often separated from His divine nature. And we take them and we toy with them as if we get to figure it all out and do so apart from 
the connection and relationship it has with the divine nature of God. Look at verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul very clearly tying God's grace and mercy into his sovereignty here. We know from Ephesians 2, verse 8, that it is by this grace that we are saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10 goes on to say that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And then it says this, good works that God hath beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. Who will walk in those good works? God's people. Why? He's ordained that. We should. We could go on talking about this interrelationship. For instance, in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Paul demonstrates that there is this relationship between grace and faith. We saw it in Ephesians 2.10. I just quoted it a moment ago. Or Ephesians 2.8, for, for by grace are you saved through faith. In Romans 4.16, Paul points out very clearly that, that it's by faith, so it may be by grace. Again, showing faith's relationship to grace in this. As a matter of fact, look in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. What happens if you start monkeying around with it? And that's an expression that uh, means treating the truths capriciously or indiscriminately. Well, what does Galatians say? Galatians chapter 2 and 21. Notice the interrelationship here if it's corrupted. In whom, whoops, Galatians 2 and 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Right? So if you start twisting it up and you say, well, you gain righteousness by the law, then what's happened? You've corrupted the very death of Christ. He died needlessly. So whenever we get in and we start turning it around and we start saying, well, a man needs to uh, do good works in order to be saved as opposed to doing them because he or she is saved, then we've corrupted the very death of Christ on the cross saying that He died needlessly. That's what Paul said here. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The grace is corrupted. The death of Christ is corrupted. And ultimately, it goes back to the very nature of God. God sent His Son to die on the cross to save the world when they could, be, could have been saved by works. What does that tell you about the nature of God and His plan? It goes on and on and on. Some might even say, well, what about the law? And then God, why did He even put the law out? Well, the answer to that is in Scripture too. It has a relation to all of it. It's not that we can be saved by it, but as He says here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 24, 
The law is our tutor. It's our tutor to bring us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster. It has a purpose in the divine plan. Well, we could go on, but I want to bring up another one. How about God's justice? Do you know that the justice of God is intimately related to our salvation? Now, as Christians, we do, especially Christians who believe in the sovereign grace of God, we like to say that we are blessed that we did not get God's justice. And we are. That is so true. We wouldn't, in our own lives, want to experience what we deserve, which is the justice of God. But we must remember that the justice of God is intimately related to our salvation. How is that so? Well, it's answered in a multitude of places in Scripture, but let me give you a couple of them. In God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look there to verse 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. The cross of Christ and the grace of God in the cross did not nullify God's justice. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, notice this, not counting their trespasses against them. That's an expression of God's grace. He didn't count our transgressions against us. He doesn't count the transgressions of God's of the people he saves against them. But that doesn't mean that he ignores those transgressions. They must be dealt with. How did he deal with them? Paul answered the question right here. Look down in the text of verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is God's justice. Except we didn't receive it. Christ did. Had He not received that, we had, would not have received grace. We would have received God's justice. The penalty for our sin. Very important. One final thought. This with regard to the authority of Christ. It too would be compromised. In John 17, 2, Jesus, as he prayed, said, Even as you gave him, that is Christ, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. If the doctrine of salvation is corrupted, and a person were to lose his or her salvation, the very authority of Christ is shown to be corrupted. It's corrupted. 
And obviously, if Christ is God and he is God in the flesh, then what have you done? You've corrupted the very nature of God. And that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible tells us in John 1, 1 that Jesus is the Word, right? And he became the flesh or that God, the Word is God and the Word became flesh in John 14 or John 1, 14. So look at it this way. John 1, 1 was the Word, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. And then whenever you move down to verse 18 in John 1, you see there that Jesus Christ is the explanation of God. You corrupt Christ, you corrupt the nature of God. And we could look at it this way. You corrupt salvation, then you corrupt the nature of Christ, the authority of Christ. You corrupt Him, you've corrupted God. It's all interrelated. It's all interrelated. You know, for the sake of peace sometimes, and because we don't and acknowledge that we don't know all things in the Word of God, we will break doctrines out as either essential or not essential. And many have even broken out this idea that a person can lose his or her salvation is really not being essential. They'll say something like this, well, they may believe that they lose their salvation, but we know in the end it's going to work out all right, because if they're a Christian, they're going to be saved anyway. They're going to get surprised when they get to heaven. Right? Listen, that's no way to treat sound doctrine. We need to be purposed to find out the truth of God's Word with regard to salvation. So all of that, coming back to this question in John 6, as we saw, and I'll go back to it here, verse 15, the question, what verses indicate that the loss of salvation would be an overturning of the absolute sovereign will of God. And John 6, 38 through 40 indicate that. It would be a disruption of His sovereign will. So this doctrine of salvation is, it speaks a lot about ultimately who? God, doesn't it? You know, we live as recipients of this great truth of salvation. We're blessed abundantly with it. There's no doubt about it. We have received it. In a sense, we are the objects of salvation in that we are the ones saved. But we must remember that God hasn't saved us merely for the sake of saving people. He has done it as an expression of His great goodness, His glory, His majesty, His justice, His mercy, and on and on. That's why Paul, after, I believe, going through Romans, actually 1 through 11, but in particular Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, said at the end of that, you know, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. And all ultimately He said, you know, to God be the glory. It's about God. When we're studying salvation, 
and we're looking at these questions and answering them in the light of John 6, we're ultimately moving back into the very nature of God, something we should not take lightly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us minds through the work of your Holy Spirit that pull these truths from your word and bring us humbly to your throne and cause us there to proclaim your greatness and glory and majesty. For you are God. You are unique. There is no God besides thee. In Jesus' name, amen.